Hello and welcome to We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. What are you doing? It's just this darkened studio, Angela. It's, it's really made... sleazy, John. Stop it. Mm, you're listening to History Around Midnight on Radio <laughs> Quiet. If you keep doing that, I'm walking out and it is just you are history, not we are history, all right? <laughs> you won't be the first person to have said that to me. <laughs> so, Angela, you've chosen this week's topic for We Are History. What are we talking about? I have. Well, it's something I'm sure I've banged on about before on this podcast. Um, but, you know, I'm... A bit of a marathon widow. Oh dear, yeah. My husband is one of these ultra marathon yes. people. Yes, how did you sleep last um, night, Angela? So, uh, he's currently training for a hundred mile race next weekend. Crazy. He's, I don't know how many he's... He is insane. He married me, we know he's insane. And uh, thank you, John. <laughs> it does make you question your relationship when your husband, rather than spend a weekend with you, would prefer to actively go out and lose both nipples to chafing. But that's <laughs> how it is. And I'm in the middle of a bout of insomnia, which could make this episode very interesting. I can barely speak. And last night, I managed to get to sleep at about three in the morning. I oh, finally no. managed to get to sleep. And then his alarm went off for a training run at 5.45. Oh, and you so, went... So, oh. long story short, I'm divorcing him. You went, oh, Matt... Your alarm seems to be going off. I did. I definitely didn't almost punch him in the face and threaten him with divorce. Um, <laughs> so he's done some mad runs, my husband. He, last year he ran from the west coast to the east coast of the country in yeah, seven days, insane. like over 30 miles a day. Um, uh, but I heard about a story, which is what I want to talk about today, about possibly the craziest race I've ever heard of. So I was at the Edinburgh Fringe last yes. year. And I went to see a show by it's a New Zealand comedian I know called Nick Sampson. Do check him out. He's very good. Right. And he did a show called Marathon 1904. And I had no idea what it was about. And it was a one-man comedy show. And it was about the St. Louis Olympic Marathon in 1904. And in fact, the whole 1904 Olympics were pretty bananas, full stop, right? So I thought we should do... An episode about Great. it. Um, my main source for this, there's not a lot written about it. Um, I actually took a lot of the information from a children's book called The Wildest Race Ever, the okay. story of the 1904 Olympic Marathon by Megan McCarthy. And there's various articles and stuff online, but it's a really... It's a mad story, John. Like, uh, buckle up. Well, I, I, it's crazy. The mm. craziest thing of all is this story set in 1904. And according to your notes, you're starting in 1904. <laughs> that, that can't be right. <laughs> John, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of. Um, because, well, we're in St. Louis, yeah. Missouri, on the Mississippi River there. Yes. And in 1904, they hold a World's Fair. Ah, right. Yeah, so we know a bit about this from when we did the uh, Great Exhibition episode, didn't we? That's right. Yeah, do you want to recap what they are? World's Fairs, Exhibitions, Exhibitions? all that stuff? Well, the, the idea of these World's Fairs, as they are called in the States, or exhibitions or expos in other countries, whatever you want to call them, they're really to showcase what a country uh, had to offer. First one on record, I think, was in Prague, uh, in what was then Bohemia in 1791. And then France really ran with the idea and had several national exhibitions in the first half of the 19th century. And then Britain, of course, had the Great Exhibition in 1851, which was the best one. Uh, and um, In your opinion. <laughs> and because it was the height of the Industrial Revolution, this was a chance to show off what your country could offer. Uh, they'd also have exhibits from other countries around the globe, too. And they were sort of imperialist in nature and exercising boosting your nation's reach and popularity. It's just showing off. Recently. Showing off. Big showing, showing off, off festivals. Yeah. So in 1984, it's decided they're going to have a big showing off festival, World Fair. That's a good way of putting it, actually. And uh, in St. Louis. Right. And it was uh, to mark the centenary of the Louisiana Purchase. Oh, right. Um, which, if you don't know, that was the acquisition of the territory of Louisiana by the United States from the French First Republic in return for $15 million. That was 
pretty cheap, wasn't it? 15 it's pretty million cheap, yeah. For to double old... the size of the United States overnight with $15 million. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think the president's wife was flicking through country life and said, we could get this. Of course, French didn't uh, occupy most of the area. Indigenous Americans did, but they didn't really let that stop them selling it off, no. graciously handing over the rights to steal that land to the United States. That's right. And um, Now, the Louisiana Purchase was actually in 1803, so the centenary should have been in 1903, uh, but they took too long organising it, which really should have been a sign of things to come, <laughs> yes, I think. So the St. Louis World Fair opens on April the 30th, 1904, and it runs until the 1st of December, 1904. Oh, that's long enough, isn't it? Yeah. It, it covered 1,200 acres, over 1,500 buildings connected by 75 miles of roads and walkways. There are exhibitions staged by about 50 foreign nations and 43 of the then 45 US states. Industrial exhibitions, arts, theatre troops, all sorts of things. Yeah, loads going on. And there was also this area called the Pike, which was quite famous, which had a sort of carnival and amusement type concessions and displays. And it, it served as a bit of local, what they used to call boosterism yeah. for St. Louis. You know, boosterism was when towns promote the local area to really try and boost the public perception of it. You know, the sort of thing that still exists today where John might pop up in an advertising campaign called Visit Maidenhead or something. They, you wouldn't, know. they wouldn't have me for Visit <laughs> Maidenhead. You and Theresa May. May. <laughs> you could do visit Maidstone. They, I mean, of course, every American state has its own state fair. Yeah. And when I was over with my, uh, because I have an American daughter-in-law, we went over to visit her parents. They said, you've got to come to the Minnesota State Fair. Oh, wow. And I went round and they have all this, food. it's all about the food, really. Ooh. I mean, it started out with agricultural exhibitions and cows and who's got the best horse or whatever. But it's all about the food now. Yeah. So many very obese people walking around. <laughs> but they said, oh, John, you've got to try this, you've got to try this. So they said, try an alligator kebab. Oh, wow. Burger. I ate a croc burger. Croc burger, I'm making snappy. And, uh, Is it a croc or an alligator? They're not the same thing. It was an alligator. <laughs> anyway, I ate this thing and then I go back to their house and they're going, so John, do you do a lot of writing at the London Library? And I'm going, mm, 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 mm. I'm sitting there and I rush to the toilet and puke up this bloody oh, <laughs> no. this, this disgusting thing. And Jackie said, he had a lot to drink. He had a lot of the local beers. It wasn't the beers. It was no, the alligator. it wasn't the 17 beers. It was the, the alligator, alligator. So burger. Of, of course American it was. Of course fair. we have um, the Kent County show doesn't sound <laughs> quite as much show. We used no. to go to the Kent County oh, show in Detling yeah, every year. Yeah, we still have the Lambeth Country show where I live, but oh, uh, yeah. it's not quite anything like this in Louis World's Fair. Famous no. for a few things, isn't it? Isn't it where they that where they invented hot dogs and ice cream cones? Well, no. There's rumours about lots of food and drinks that were invented for St. Louis World Fair, including candy floss or cotton candy, as they call it, yeah. Dr. Pepper, loads of things. But most of them, those rumours can be debunked. Most of that stuff existed before, but the fair probably popularised a lot oh, of those things. Okay. Um, there were loads of displays there, and one of them, John, was um, Wilhelm Röntgen's X-ray machine. Remember that? Oh. If you listen to our Radio Mania episode, you'll know that that had its first public outing at the St. Louis World Fair. There will reach a point with our podcast that we'll just list all the previous podcasts we've done, <laughs> yeah, and so we'll just say, "Well, just there <laughs> must be one like episode that just encompasses everything that we could just refer to every episode we've done." Um, so at the St. Louis World Fair, there was an early fax machine apparently which seems a bit unlikely but I'll take your word for it wireless telephone the world's first airship contest uh, whereby a prize of $100,000 would be awarded to the airship or other flying machine that made the best time through a set course Uh, nobody won it nope Uh, uh, (laughs) 
didn't all go off very peacefully, did it, Angela? No, no. There were some exciting moments. Um, on June the 5th, they'd scheduled a bullfight <laughs> at the St. Louis World's Fair in this arena just north of where the fairgrounds were. But it was in conjunction with the fair. And it turned violent because the Missouri governor at the time ordered police to stop the event because the state had anti-bullfighting wow. laws, right? Yeah, so all the spectators demanded refunds and when they didn't get them, they started throwing stones through the arena windows. Yeah. Uh, there weren't enough police to hold them off and the mob burned the arena to the ground. Yeah, because oh. they couldn't see bullfighting. <laughs> so there's a lot going on and I think what's quite important to acknowledge at this point, right, before we go on to what happened next, because there's a silly story this, but there is a dark side to it. Right. Because um, it's interesting that the governor of Missouri at the time was concerned about the welfare of the bulls and the anti-bullfighting laws and all yes. of that. But that concern wasn't extended to a lot of actual human beings. Right. Um, so, like I say, there was a dark side to the World's Fair. And for instance, there were concessions, and this happened a lot in these World yes. Fairs at this time, exhibitions of what they would have called at the time savage or uncivilised wow. people. So, for example, at, at this World Fair, there was an Anglo-Boer War concession, which featured a British army encampment and several South African native villages, and they would reenact major battles from the Boer War, from the Second Boer War, but they would reenact them with actual veteran soldiers from both sides. Wow, that's insane. So from it? the South African villages and from yeah, so, yeah. So you fight a war, and that's bad enough, and then you get hired to, to reenact your war for the pleasure of some onlookers. Americans. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. There were yeah. people from Guam, weren't there? Yeah, Philippines and Puerto Rico. Uh, territories that controversially became uh, unincorporated territories of the United States in 1899. Um, and they were brought over to be displays. Yeah. They basically trafficked to the event in terrible conditions and housed on reservations. And people died en route and at the reservations themselves. And uh, when they died, they were not allowed to perform their own burial rituals. No, no so lots of indigenous people in these displays, these sort of human zoos. Geronimo himself, the former war chief of the Apache, he's quite famous. Yes. Um, he'd surrendered eight years before this and was held as a prisoner of war right up till he died in 1909. Right. And he was put on display at the fair along with lots of other indigenous Americans as well. Wow. Uh, and at the, this time, the notion of primitive people was a prevailing way of thinking among white Westerners, That's wasn't right. It? it was just, you know... I thought it was important to acknowledge it. Yeah, this yeah, is how yeah. it is at this point. And some of the people that took part in these displays were paid. They were compensated for their parties. I'm not saying that makes it okay. No, no. Um, and some of them ended up appearing in so many different shows and exhibitions throughout Europe and elsewhere in America. They had their own agents. Wow. And, you know, it's quite yeah, a thing quite at a the business. time. So during its course, the St. Louis World Fair had over 19 million visitors. Mm. Uh, Anyone who was anyone wanted to be seen there. And there were some well-known faces. There were. We go through a few of them. Um, Helen Keller was there, the okay. famous author and disability rights activist, a deafblind woman yes. who wrote books about her experiences. She gave a lecture in the main auditorium. Uh, Scott Joplin wrote his ragtime piece, The Cascades, specifically for the fair. Yeah. And Jack Daniel of Jack Daniel's fame won a gold medal for the finest whiskey in the world. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, so I can only assume there were no other entrants. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
Um, President Theodore Roosevelt, he did attend, but interestingly, so it opened in April, but he yeah. didn't attend till November until after he'd been re-elected uh-huh. because he said he didn't want to use the fair for political purposes. Can you imagine a politician today going, no, 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 I shan't use that to advance my political I bet, situation. I bet it's just because he's late at getting around to things. It's yeah. like, I went to see the Millennium Dome on the very last day it was open, the 31st of December, and it was like... <laughs> Do you think that's interesting? That he, yeah. You know, that would have been a perfect campaigning opportunity, yeah. and he thought it was wrong to die. I mean, that's really interesting. It might have been he... perceived as too grabby. It might have been perceived yeah. as too uh, attention-seeking. Too, yeah. So, so to he find didn't... that balance. Yeah. So. His daughter was there, Alice Roosevelt, who yeah. I am fascinated by. Do you know anything about Not Alice? Not until I read your nose. I'll do a little... So she was quite the sort of it girl of her... I don't know if that's still a thing. It girls, that's oh, quite 90s. Quite... I think they're Nepo babies now, aren't they? That's the <laughs> thing. Um, so she might be the original Nepo baby. Yeah. Uh, she was quite... A character, Alice. She one newspaper said that in fifteen months she'd attended four hundred and seven dinners, three hundred and fifty balls, and three hundred parties. Wow! She, she smoked cigarettes in public. She rode in cars with men. Men, John, smoking cigarettes in public and riding in cars with men. Um, and she part. She was a party girl, and she had this pet snake called Emily Spinach. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. See, that is right? the, that's the detail that leaps out of me. Brilliant. It's not just she has a pet snake. What's it's obviously called Emily Spinach. Apparently I can't remember. The Emily was named after someone and the spinach was because it was green. Okay. Fair enough. Um, and she kept it in the White House. But she got involved in politics a bit too much in places, people thought. And there's quite, there's reads about her. She's really fascinating. But anyway, she was there and people loved her. Like when she turned up, there was a, a crush of fans to right. try and see her. So in typical Angela style, we've got quite far into this podcast about the 1904 Olympics. And so far, nobody has run anywhere or jumped over anything. No. No, we haven't got to the Olympics yet, John, but it's coming, I promise. We'll take a little break now, and I promise there'll be Olympic talk in the next section, because you know me, I like to set a scene. Oh, yes. So we are history. We're talking about the 1904 Olympics, though, to be fair, we haven't said a lot about them so far. Not yet, but it's coming, John. So the St. Louis World Fair is a pretty big spectacle already. So while you're there, John, why not throw in an Olympics? Why not? This is 1904, so it would be the third modern Olympics under the International Olympic Committee. The first being Athens in 1896 and then Paris, held at the uh, Paris Exposition in uh, 1900. Yeah, so... It was actually Chicago that had won the bid for the third modern Olympics in 1904. But the organisers of the World's Fair got a bit sniffy about it. They weren't too happy about this other international event being held at the same time, a mere 300 or so miles away. So they decided, right, well, what we'll do then is we'll plan for our own massive international sporting event. And they told the Chicago Olympic Organising Committee that that's what they were doing and that they intended to completely eclipse their silly little Olympic Games. Um, So they should probably just move the Games to St. Louis. And eventually the founder of the modern Olympic movement was a guy called Pierre de Coubertin. He stepped in and just awarded the Games to St. Louis. I love how these, in the olden days, that's how the Olympics were sorted. So the following one, 1908, was supposed to be in Italy. And um, a big volcano went off. It might have been Vesuvius or something. But anyway, they're all a bit preoccupied with that. So Lord Desborough, um, from Maidenhead, in fact, he goes, he was over there. He goes, well, we'll have them in London. And they went, went, oh, well, we're going to have, no, no, we'll move them to London. So they became the London Games. They hadn't been awarded to England. They'd been awarded to the Italians. But yeah, it just goes to show that if you stamp your feet and cause a scene, you can get your own way. Yes, good lesson to learn that in life, (laughs) I think. 
Um, now, most modern Olympics we know in our lifetime, days, John, yeah. it last just over two weeks. Yeah. Um, but in St. Louis, the Games went on for nearly five months. Wow. Yeah. So from the 1st of July to the 23rd of November, the track and field contests were held between... 29th of August to 3rd of September, which were like the official scheduled dates for the yeah. Games. But the rest of the events, they just sort of sprinkled them around the World Fair schedule that was already going on. Right. And then the Olympic events were also mixed in with other World Fair sporting events, including uh, a military athletic carnival, an Irish sports festival. Yeah. And to make it even more confusing, the organisers just used the word Olympic for everything. So nobody knew which were the official events. No. So these events were all just going on simultaneously. No one really knew what was what. What was Olympics? What wasn't? So Ireland won the world hurling competition, I suppose. Yes. Here's another little fun fact about the 1908 Games in London. They actually went on even longer than these ones. They were 188 days. Are you one of those people who finds you? I'm not really that into the Olympics. I know no, some people find themselves. No, Mark Steely will watch. Anything. Oh my God, he'll yeah. watch. I love it how every four years as a nation, it seems that we pick like one thing to suddenly. Oh, this year we're all suddenly experts in kayak slalom. Or, or, or if Britain wins a gold, it's like. And the world is watching the small bore rifle conflict. Exactly. No, only, no, no Britain, only Britain. No only Mark Steele is. Curling is the <laughs> yeah, other one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, in the winter Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Massive curling gold yeah, for the Brits. So funny. Yeah. So the chief organiser of these 1904 Olympics was a man called James Sullivan. And he was responsible for one of the most terrible, not to mention racist, ideas of the whole thing. So in order to drum up publicity for the Olympic track and field events, and also because he was a massive racist, (laughs) Sullivan organised this two-day event before the official Olympics started called Anthropology Days. Dangerous, dangerous. And he he was clearly a firm believer in white supremacy and saw these games as an opportunity to prove it. So what he did... He persuaded the head of the Department of Anthropology at the World Fair. They had an anthropology section, which is where all these awful human zoos and everything were. And this man's name was William John McGee. He persuaded him to lend him some men from these, what they called ethnic displays. Yes. These human zoos. And he told McGee that what he would do is set up competitions between the native people. And that would provide McGee with this body of data that could help him with his research and make his mark in his field. Right. So about 100 indigenous men took part in different events, shot put, running, weightlifting, pole climbing. They were totally unprepared and ignorant of the rules of any of these events. So, of course, they didn't do very well. Uh, Sprinters didn't have the concept of crossing the finishing line explained to them. So stop short of the ribbon, uh, waited for others to reach them and they all went under it together. Yeah. So so there was another example of um, a team of Arapaho competitors were invited to do a tug of war, but they didn't know what that was. So they turned up, they'd been invited to this event. They turned up in their best costumes, their best dress. And when the rules were explained to them, like get in that mud and pull that rope, they were like, well, no, because we're in our best clothes. So they refused to do it and then lost by default. And that proves, of course, for James Sullivan, the apparent failures of the participants just fueled his racist beliefs. He, yeah. he was able to conclude the events were proof. In his words, the savage has been a very much overrated man from an athletic point of view. Unbelievable, isn't it? Um, I should say not everybody approved of this sort of grotesque sideshow that was going on. And Pierre de Coubertin, who was the 
head of the modern Olympics yeah, who had awarded yeah. it to St. Louis. He was not a fan of James Sullivan, should be said. In fact, he avoided attending going to St. Louis Olympics at all. I think he could see what was happening. Um, he actually said, and I quote, that he had a sort of presentiment that the Olympiad would match the mediocrity of the town. Ooh, yeah, right? And, and actually, the anthropology days, he called them at the time an outrageous charade. And he made the interesting point. He said... It will, of course, lose its appeal when black men, red men, yellow men, his words, when they learn to run, jump and throw and leave the white men behind them. So, you know, Ooh, basically yeah. when when they are given an equal footing Starting and point, able yeah. to, you know, yeah. you're not going to be so into it then. Yes. When you see that there isn't white supremacy. Absolutely. I think we can both agree on that, I Angela. think we can. <laughs> We're yes. against the idea of white supremacy on this podcast. Yes. Back to the official Olympic Games then. It's fair to say... They weren't the most international of international Olympics. Is that fair? No, they weren't. Um, there's lots going on. There was a Russian-Japanese war, which prevented some nations attending. And St. Louis in 1904 wasn't the easiest place to yeah, get absolutely. to from around the world. You know, you couldn't fly there. Um, so out of the 651 athletes who competed in the official games, only 62 of them came from outside North America. And only somewhere between 12 and 15 nations were represented at all. Still, it's more nations represented than the Baseball World Series. Oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> um, a little interesting fact about these games. This was the first Olympics where the three medal format of gold, silver and bronze was introduced. Well, that's interesting. Well, what did they do before that then? Well, in Paris in 1900, they were given cups, trophies, bits of art. Bits of art. Bits like, of art. So, so something like a little uh, thing from the gift shop. Yeah, <laughs> little, that's it. little certificate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Um few notable things about the St. Louis Olympics. Boxing, freestyle wrestling and decathlon made their debuts. Yeah. Uh, a man called George Iser was a standout athlete of the Games. He won six medals in gymnastics despite his left leg being made of wood. Blimey. That's pretty impressive, That is isn't impressive, it? isn't it, when you're yeah. landing on the beam? No, yeah. that, that, that's my leg you're landing on. <laughs> How did Team GB, Angela? This is what the listeners want to know. How did Team GB get on? Sorry, <laughs> oh, team GB, how did they get on, Angela? Uh, well, Team GB didn't send a team. However, three Irish athletes attended okay. and they won two medals. And so the IOC later awarded those medals to Britain oh. because this was pre-1921. Okay, obviously. right. Well, well, we'll go along with it, given this is a history podcast. Yes, I know um, you're not happy about out that. Out of the nearly 100 sports at the 1904 Olympics, archery was the only event in which women were allowed to compete. Yeah. Um, the competition took place on September the 19th and 20th and involved six lovely contestants. <laughs> <laughs> lovely girls. <laughs> lovely girls. Um, actually, interestingly, women did take part in boxing matches wow. um, at the Games, but their bouts were considered display events, so there were no medals handed out. They didn't count for anything. But that would be the last time women boxed at the Olympics for 108 years because wow. they didn't revive women's boxing at the Olympics until London 2012. That's an interesting fact. Isn't it? Um, keep going. This is good oh, yeah, stuff. Sorry, yeah. um, but anyway, the event that led me to this whole story was, of course, the marathon. So let's have a little bit about the marathon as an event, John. Like, where's it come from, the marathon? It comes from ancient Greece, Angela. The name marathon comes from the chocolate bar that was changed into <laughs> Snickers. Uh, that is pretty ancient uh, yes. history. It comes from the legend of uh, Philippides. Uh, he was taking part in the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, and he ran without stopping all the way to Athens to deliver the news of the Greek victory. Uh, he ran the entire distance without stopping, discarding his weapons and even clothes to lose as much weight as possible – 
and burst into the assembly exclaiming, we win, uh, before promptly collapsing and dying and uh, too late for anyone to correct his grammar. Because we win is not it's not very good, is it? It must be the, a bad translation of the ancient I Greek. I think uh, well, there's several translations. I just picked one of them. We so win. I don't think. Yeah, I think we won would have been better. But anyway, uh, that's the origin of the marathon. Yeah. And then there, so, so, it was, it was... so the marathon as we know it today was conceived as an event for the modern Olympics to sort of recall the glory of ancient Greece yes. and have this popular event that everyone would be into in the Games. And, you know, it's one of only 12 athletics events to have been held at every single Summer Olympics. That's very interesting. But stay tuned for possibly the third and definitely most bananas Olympic marathon ever after this break. Hello again. We're back. It's the 30th of August, 1904, and we are under starter's orders for the Olympic marathon. Yes, indeed. Now, at this point, John, the distance for the marathon hadn't been standardised. So in St. Louis, it was 24.85 miles, which is about 40 kilometres. Okay. Um, The modern distance that we know, like 42.195 kilometres or 26 point whatever miles, uh, was set by the International Amateur Athletic Federation in 1921, and that was based on the length of the London Olympics marathon in 1908. Oh, okay. Anyway, back to St. Louis. Now, usually marathons start early in the morning so that runners are running in the coolest part of the day. Makes sense? Yep. But in one of a catalogue of, let's call them stupid decisions by the organisers of this marathon, this race, they decided, was to start at 3pm. Okay, let's have a look at some of the athletes competing in the marathon. 41 runners had signed up, but only 32 started on the day of the race. To be fair, John, we've all done it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to do the race for life. I've signed up for it. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'll play play football on Sunday morning. Hangover Sunday morning. That's why you always recruit 18 players for the 11 a side. Exactly. (laughs) So a few of the runners in the race were recognised marathon runners who'd either won or placed in the Boston Marathon or in the previous Olympic marathons. But the majority of the field were middle distance runners and other just assorted randoms. Right. So the favourites were five experienced marathon runners, American Sam Meller, Arthur Newton, John Lorden and Michael Spring, plus Thomas Hicks, who was born in Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, as in our one, not the Alabama one, yeah. uh, but had been living and working in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah, so there had been an announcement a few weeks before the marathon in the New York Times um, saying that the Metropolitan Association of the Amateur Athletic Union would hold this special seven-mile okay. race and the eight top finishers would get a paid trip to go and compete in the marathon at the Olympic Games in St. Louis. Because, you know, John, if you can run seven miles, you can run 24. You've actually done it. You've actually done it. You've I could only actually find for sure two people that I know entered the race that way. Uh, There was an American named Fred Laws. We'll definitely hear more from him. Um, He was actually a bricklayer who had to train at night because he had to work during the day. Okay. And then another man called Sam Meller. Um, who was actually one of the favourites you just mentioned. There was a Frenchman called uh, Albert Corre who lived in the US but didn't have the right papers, so he was listed as an American. Uh, he was a strike breaker, which doesn't seem a very French thing to be. No, it doesn't, does it? <laughs> um, two entrants in the race were from the anglo Boer concession at the World's Fair that we talked about oh, right. before. Two men from the Swana tribe of South Africa. I oh, hope yeah. I'm pronouncing that right. right. I'm doing my Botswana. best. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were Jan Mashiani right. and Len Taunyani. And they were the first Africans ever to enter an Olympic 
wow. marathon. They they'd taken part and done well in the Anthropology Day games right. in one of the races there, I think, or some of the races there. So they'd been selected then to do the marathon as well. And both men apparently ran barefoot. Wow. In this marathon. And then there were 10 Greek runners who apparently had never done a marathon before, <laughs> but I think they thought, well, they're Greek. They must be good at it. They'd That's be good enough. At yeah. <laughs> they're qualified. Imagine they're in. Demis Roussos turning up. Yeah, I'm Greek, so I'll be able to run a marathon. Nana Miskul. Yeah. They're the only two famous Greek oh, people I can think of. Is there any? No, there's There's got to be someone else. Loads more. Katerina Vrana is a comedian I know who's Greek. Uh, there's many more. That's oh, it. we've had to cut that bit out when we listed them all because we're over well, time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a shame. Oh, there was hundreds. There was loads of Greek, Greek people you came up with during that edit. And yeah, like, tons. Well done. Um, <laughs> I think my favourite entrant, John, was... John's laughing at this bit because this is about the third time I've, I'm going to try and say this man's name, even though I've written it phonetically in my notes. Here we go. I think my favourite entrant... No, he was my favourite. Like, let's see, you've got to give him the time. Don't just laugh at my pronunciation because this dude is... His name was Felix Carbajal. Oh. And he was... <laughs> He was, stop it, John. <laughs> right. So he was this Cuban national. Right. Okay. And he'd raise money to come to the States for the marathon by going around Cuba, demonstrating his running prowess and getting people to give him money. He treks the whole length of the island of Cuba and raised it. So then when he arrived in America, yep. he immediately lost all this money in a card game in New Orleans. Oh, dear. So he had to hitchhike a walk to St. Louis for the race. Quite a long way. Now, he was just five foot tall, this little wow. Cuban guy. And he was wearing this white long sleeve shirt, long dark trousers, a beret and shoes. Yes, shoes, street shoes, because he couldn't then afford to get the gear he needed because he'd lost all his money. Oh, dear. So one of his fellow Olympians felt a bit sorry for him, found a pair of scissors, cut his trousers down to shorts. But I'm not sure how useful that is in a race when you're wearing shoes oh dear there's always one kid at school wasn't there who couldn't afford the, yeah, couldn't yeah. Afford the gym shoes and was like do doing do his it in socks. their school shoes yeah, or socks. school shoes yeah. so the night before the race there have been severe rainstorms and when on the day of the marathon uh, a car of race officials went out to check the route they found that most of it had washed away <laughs> which is a bit of a problem yeah just so a bit. they had to quickly map out a new route which turned out to be much harder and much hillier than the original one. So it's all going really well um, so far. At precisely 3.03pm, yep. David R. Francis, president of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition Company, fires the starting pistol and the men were off. Now, the plan is they go five times around the stadium, right. then out into these hilly dirt roads. Right. Uh, one official at the race described the course as the most difficult a human being was ever asked to run over. Yeah, the heat and the humidity of this particular afternoon was unreal. Yeah. Temperature was around 32 degrees and the roads they were running on were inches deep in dust. Yep. Dust. God, you think they run the hoover around before, <laughs> before they started running. So, so let's have a look at this course then. Seven hills, varying from 100 to 300 feet high, some of them with really long ascents. And that's horrible. I mean, when my husband did his first 100-mile race, um, I was meeting him every sort of 10 or 20 miles to give him water and food or whatever. And I remember seeing him at the 50-mile mark, and he looked dreadful. I was like, there's no way he's going to finish this race. He looked absolutely terrible. He was shaking it. And I gave him some food and he went off on his way. And I just thought, oh God, I'll just be ready with my car to go and pick him up and take him home. And then I met him at the 60 mile mark. So, cause you can only go to certain checkpoints yes. and, uh, and he was just fine. And I was like, what happened there? And he said, I just run up a big hill. 
Oh, I see. That's all it was. He was like, yeah, the 50 mile mark was just at the top of this big hill. And he thought like, oh my God, I can't do it. I'm struggling. And then he just looked fine. I thought this was going to be a story about how great your food was you gave him, like some special I gave cake. him a pot noodle, so a it definitely wasn't really? that. That's what he wanted. <laughs> he eats his food for races. This Because yeah. obviously if you're running 100 miles, you need a lot of sugar, carbs, things yeah, to eat. Yeah, yeah. So he eats cold pizza, pot noodles at the stops, if you can make him one, and uh, Jamaican ginger cake. Okay. There you go. Very good, very impressive. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, not only were the roads dusty and hilly in St. Louis, there were cracked and broken stones all the way along. Uh, so it all made for some pretty perilous footing. Yeah, not only that, the road wasn't closed for the race job. Wow. So they also had to dodge the cross-town traffic, which... You know, sure, in 1904, it wasn't exactly the M25, but there were delivery wagons, railroad trains, trolley cars, and just, you know, people walking their dogs. <laughs> there were support cars that drove alongside the runners carrying coaches and trainers and doctors. But the support cars just kicked up all the dust on the roads, leaving the runners coughing their lungs out and not able to see a thing. Um, oh, and at one point, one of these cars carrying a doctor plummeted down a 30-foot embankment, hospitalising the doctor and another man. Yeah. It's all going very well. So it's going well. They're, they're coughing with the dust, 32 degrees, humid, hot. Now, the next bit, though, I think is one of the most stupid decisions ever made in the history of stupid decisions. Are you ready for this, John? Yeah. Okay. So it's 32 degrees, high humidity, loads of dust. So you, you'd expect these runners are going to be given a lot of water on the way round to get them through. Right. Wrong. On the whole course, there were only two places where runners could access water, a water tower at six miles and a roadside well at 12 miles. I'll tell you why, right? Because the old racist, James Sullivan, yeah, he's the organiser of the games. He also fancied himself as a bit of a scientist. Oh, no. And he decided that in this race, he would purposefully minimise fluid intake in order to test the limits and effects of something that was called purposeful dehydration. Just give okay. it a fancy name. So this is this is the idea. Going back to the early days of marathon running, yeah. they thought that taking on fluids in long-distance races was not only unnecessary, but detrimental. Why on earth would they think that? So this is a doozy why they thought that. So they studied runners, okay. and they found that at the end of the race, the top finishers had lost most body weight. Yes. So their logic was that the best runners lost the most water weight. Therefore, losing fluids was necessary to maximise performance. So hydration must be bad if the best runners are getting rid of the most fluids. So the conclusion they draw from that is because the top runners were the most dehydrated, dehydration must make you run fastest. That's like saying the fastest runners are always tired and therefore tired people are the fastest runners. Yeah, yeah. or the fastest runners have blisters on their feet. So people with blisters run faster. Better give everyone blisters before the race. I mean, it is total madness. So let's have a look at how some of our runners got on. Oh, yeah. So Sam Meller was in third place at the three-mile mark and in second at the six-mile mark, take lead the halfway point, but he got severe cramping, slow to walk and eventually dropped out altogether. Yep. Also, John Lorden suffered about vomiting and gave up. So that's two of the favourites are out. Uh, at the nine-mile mark, Fred Laws was also plagued with cramps. So he hitched a ride in one of the sport vehicles. Good idea. Waving at the spectators and the other runners as he went past. And one of the reasons they were probably all getting cramps, John? Right, remember those two places where they were allowed to access water? Yeah. Well, we think now that those water sources were probably contaminated. 
Brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. So how's our Cuban friend in the shoes getting on? Oh, I'm glad you asked, John. So he was having a, a lovely time. He's trotting along in his shirt and shoes and he would have made much better time than he did, except every time a spectator cheered him on, he would stop and talk to them because he wanted to practice his English. <laughs> he was just living his best life, John. It's brilliant. Then, right later on, he saw some people in a car and yeah. they were eating peaches. So he goes up to them, asks them for one. They say he can't have one. So he just nicked them and ran off eating these peaches as he runs along. Right, right. A bit further along, he gets to an orchard and he stops and eats some apples, but it turns out they were rotten. So he's also getting these stomach cramps. So he just has a little lay down in the orchard, just has a little nap for a bit. So it's all just chaos, <laughs> yeah. this race. It's like wacky races, it, is it? It's so mad. <laughs> uh, one of the two South African participants was chased a mile off course by wild dogs. <laughs> Not entirely sure which of them it was because reports of the time give different names because, you know, they were racist and don't bother to make sure they were naming the right person. Yeah. And then we get to Brummy-born Thomas Hicks, if you remember him. He was an early favourite in the race, but at the 10-mile mark, he was flagging a bit. Right, So he came under the care of these two men who were his support crew and he was absolutely begging them for water, but they refused to give him any. They just sponged his mouth out with a little bit of warm, distilled water. That must have been torture to be that dehydrated and just get sponged in the mouth oh with a God. bit of warm water. It gets worse, John. So seven miles from the finish, he's really struggling. So what do you reckon his support team give him then? Please say water, Angela. No, John. Strychnine. <laughs> But like rat poison. <laughs> yep. That's what you need. Actual strychnine mixed with egg whites, because in small doses it was used as a stimulant. Right. And there were no rules then about performance-enhancing drugs. As a little aside oh, about oh, performance-enhancing drugs, yes. I've, I've got a, a plan, right, yeah. of how you deal with drugs in sport. What you do is you don't make it illegal, right. but athletes, before they start a race, instead of choosing which drug they have, they have to take one out of a lucky dip, yeah. right? So you might get a performance-enhancing one, but you might get something else, because... I would watch sport if I had to watch Mo Farah do 10,000 metres in a K-hole. Yeah. Right? Athletics is a bit boring, isn't it? Yeah. But instead of passing a baton on the relay race, we're passing a massive doobie. Yeah, You'd exactly. watch that. I totally would. <laughs> so, passing charge, John. So right. anyway, while all this is going on, Fred Laws, remember yeah, him? Yeah. He's yeah. done 11 miles in the car now. And he starts feeling well a bit perkier, him. right? <laughs> but he does. So he gets out and he just starts running again. So one of Thomas Hicks' trainers sees him and says, get off the course like you've just been in a car. But he just carries on, crosses the finish line in first with a time of just under three Incredible hours. Time. Because, you know, he did 11 miles by car. The crowd goes wild. It starts chanting because an American has won the race. Yeah. Alice Roosevelt is there. She places a winner's wreath <laughs> on his head and she's just about to pop the medal around his neck when someone shouts out that Laws is an imposter. Yeah, so the crowd, they start booing and Laws starts backtracking going, no, no, I wasn't really going to claim the win. I'm just joking. It's all a big joke. Ha, 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 ha. You know? Yeah. Just, meanwhile, Thomas Hicks, all jacked up on his strychnine, he started to get a bit pale and limp. Not right? But he perks up a bit when someone tells him that Laws has been disqualified. So his trainers give him another dose of strychnine. And this time, to wash it down, though, they give him... Uh, please say they gave him water. No, brandy, John. <laughs> 
because you should always wash it strictly down with brandy. You know that. This Come is on. Basic. This is basic sort of uh, <laughs> Just... race etiquette. Yeah. Um, so Charles Lucas, a race official, wrote that over the last two miles of the road, Hicks was running mechanically like a well-oiled piece of machinery. His eyes were dull, lusterless. The ashen colour of his face and skin had deepened. His arms appeared as weights well tied down. He could scarcely, scarcely lift his legs while his knees were almost stiff. It was mad. He was hallucinating a mile from the finish. He thought he was 20 miles away. He was begging for food and water and to lie down. And they were just shoving more egg whites down him. And then when he finally got into the stadium, he was sort of shuffling along and his two trainers carried him over the line. They picked him up and his legs were just still running. <laughs> like a cartoon like, cat. Yeah. So he won. He did. Fantastic. But it took an hour and four doctors to sort him out enough before he was well enough to actually accept his win and leave the ground. Wow. He lost eight pounds during the course of the race. That's over half a stone. That's incredible. So uh, second place was Albert Corre, the Frenchman who told a reporter the distance was too short for me. I would have preferred to run 10 miles longer. A bit cocky, cocky, yeah. yeah typical. <laughs> and our friend, Carbajal, well pronounced. He finished fourth, John, in shoes. In his shoes. He stopped for a nap, chatted to everyone all the way around. I don't know if I mentioned this, John. He's wearing shoes and he came fourth. So Jan Masciani finished 12th and Len Taunyani finished ninth. Yeah. Um, there was nearly a fatality during the race, which would have been the first ever in a marathon. Uh, William Garcia from California, he collapsed on the side of the road and they didn't find him on the course until long after the sun had set later. Wow. Uh, he was hemorrhaging. He had um, His esophagus was just coated in dust and his stomach lining ripped. He was oh, in dear. right old state, but he did survive. And the marathon ended with the worst ratio of entrance to finishers, 14 out of 32, and by far the slowest winning time, uh, three hours... 28 minutes, almost 30 minutes slower than the second slowest winning time. That's crazy, isn't it? So that was the St. Louis Olympics with the most bonkers marathon ever. Did the um, runners, Angela, did they ever run again after that? You'd think they wouldn't, wouldn't you? Laws, uh, who took the car, he received a lifetime ban oh, for cheating. Oh, uh, But it was later <laughs> reduced. Um, so he, I think he was just banned for a year or something then. And despite Thomas Hicks swearing he was never going to run again. Wow. Um, <laughs> Until the Strychnine wore off. Uh, They both did the Boston Marathon the following year and Laws actually won it, but this time just using his legs or so he says. Uh, Corey, the Frenchman, he became an ultramarathon runner. Don't know if they called that then, but that's what he did. And in 1905, he tried to break the record for running 100 miles. Now, he did it in 23 hours, 10 minutes. My husband's personal best is 23 hours, 30 minutes. That's impressive. Um, but to be fair, my husband did it on the North Downs, so okay. you know, a bit hilly. But my, I don't know. No, that's very impressive. Um, Corey eventually did beat the world record in 1907. He ran it in 18 hours, 33 minutes. Okay. And if you're interested, the current record for the 100 miles, John... Is 10 hours, 51 minutes, 39 seconds, which basically you're running 100 miles at a sprint. Almost. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. It's crazy. Um, if, by the way, listeners, if mad races and ultra marathons are your sort of thing, do watch. There's a show on Netflix called The Berkeley Marathon, which my husband's obsessed with. Okay, I've told him he definitely can't do it. But it's, um, it's mad in a different way. I mean, the people that do it are at least prepared and they are allowed to drink water. Uh, but it's this bloke in the middle of nowhere in the States and he set up this race. I won't tell you all the details. Watch the documentary. It is bonkers, but brilliant. Well, that's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing the story of the uh, St. Louis Olympics with me. Angela, I knew nothing about it. Uh, And uh, sport in the olden days was nuts. Um, But I'd say... 
A bit more fun. Well, a bit more, bit more entertaining. For spectators. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I need to lie down just from listening to all oh that. My God, and the, yeah. the prospect of Matt doing 100 miles fills me with just uh, exhaustion. Just, well, just by imagine. the time this goes out, we'll know how he did. So, yes. um, you know. Thanks for listening to We Are History. Please do remember, if you haven't already, that you can subscribe to the podcast. Links in the show notes. And also, you can now join our Patreon Members Club. Lots of people already signed up. A big thank you to them. William the Conqueror has signed up for We Are History. Vlad uh, the Impaler. Cardinal Richler. Are they the only people in history we can think of? <laughs> Pathetic. So thank you. Cheryl Harris. Uh, Sandra Hines. Jennifer D'Souza. Susan A. Brooke. And WL. That's very mm, mysterious. Isn't yeah. that who Shakespeare wrote some sonnets to? Was that WL? W? I can't remember. Anyway. I should know that. Um, but thank you guys for sponsoring us and giving us your support. You get loads of brilliant things and all for less than the cost of a jar of coffee. Yeah, I saw one the other day, John, for nine quid. Nine quid for a jar of instant. Can you yeah, believe for it? For less than that, you can get episodes a week early and without ads, plus exclusive content and access to suggested topics, and you can discuss episodes. Yeah, and for a little bit more, you can get your paws on some great We Are History merch too. So head on over to patreon.com slash history. Yes, thanks to everyone at Podmasters for looking after us. Give us a follow on Twitter at We Are History Pod and also on Instagram, which we're trying to do a bit more of at We Are History Pod. Yep, and we'll see you next time when we'll be talking about, John, your topic. I have chosen women's rights in modern Ireland. Because John likes to tell me about feminism. I'm going to explain <laughs> feminism to Angela. Uh, St. Patrick and the Patriarchy. That's what it's going to be from 1970 to 2018. Fascinating stuff. That one. Yes. yes. And we'll see you then. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>